0: Welcome back. Good afternoon. We're in John 5 and um, I'll read verses 1 to 18. We finished with a wonderful chapter of John 4 last time and we move now to John chapter 5. And after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus also and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple And said to him, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word many of us are very familiar with Jesus we sing songs about Jesus we read things about Jesus we have studies about Jesus and many of us have been around Jesus since we were very young but if you listen to Jesus and I mean really pay attention to him he is going to surprise you he certainly surprised and you could say Go further and say shocked, and you can even go further and say scandalized those around him in first century Palestine. He did he did it in first century Israel, and if you pay attention, he will do it in 21st century Britain. And I want you to notice four things the Lord Jesus said in this passage. Each one increasingly surprising, shocking, scandalizing. Verse 6. The first thing: do you want to be healed? Or well, Jesus. Is back in Jerusalem. He had has already been in Jerusalem. Chapter 2. The cleansing of the temple. The turning over of the tables. Driving out the money changers. Which led to the interaction in chapter 3. With Nicodemus. We do not know when this is. You see the transition in verse 1. After this. So. Sometime after. He was in Jerusalem and Judea. Last. Week, chapter 4, he was in Galilee. Now, sometime after this, now this could be 18 months after his last time in Jerusalem in John 2 and 3. But sometime later, now he is back in Jerusalem for an unspecified feast. John's gospel tells us that Jesus is at this well-known location, at least well-known at the time. This sheep gate, as best as we can figure, was a little opening in the north wall of the city. And near this sheep gate, verse 2 tells us, there is a pool. And actually there were two pools situated north and south, surrounded by four colonnades, with the fifth colonnade between the two pools. Modern scientific archaeology has testified that this place did exist. The name in Aramaic, language of the Hebrews, is Bethesda. Bethesda, which means house without pouring. I live in Bethesda house, Bethesda house of outpouring. And there were all of these, these covered porches. And it became a popular place for those with any manner of disability to go. You have a roof over your head. You had protection, some protection from the elements. You have these pools which supposedly had healing properties. And Jesus is here and he sees a man who's been lying there for quite some considerable time. Verse six, he says, a long time. Now, we don't know. Is that a long time that particular day, or or is it ref, ref, reference in the thirty-eight years that this man had been living with this disability? And then Jesus asks the question: "Do you want to be healed?" The man is an invalid, has been so for t- thirty-eight years, and Jesus has the audacity to come and shock him and ask this question of all questions: "Do you want to be healed?" Of course, he wants to be healed, but Jesus is after something. More. And the man assumes that Jesus is talking about the pool, about the water. So he tries to explain his predicament. So he says to him in verse 7, Respectfully, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. You can paraphrase it, sir. You ask if I want to be healed. Obviously, you're talking about this water here, but I have no one to bring me to this water. In times past, when I try to get into the water, somebody always cut in front of me. And they got into the bubbling goodness before I could. Now, this was possibly the bubbling of a natural spring that would feed into this pool from time to time. And it seems that locals believed that it could provide healing. That when the water was stirred, when the bubbles would come, either therapeutically or thinking medicinally, there was something in them that would naturally heal them. Or thinking supernaturally, there was some kind of miracle that would produce healing. The bubbles come, the stirring of the water. And this is what was engaging to the people that something in this water had healing properties. I don't know whether you noticed or you can notice now that there is no verse 4. You know, the numbers, the chapters and the verses are not inspired. They have been there a long time, but they were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes centuries ago, they had verse four and you can see it in the King James. Now, these days, because of access to better and older Greek manuscripts, they do not have verse four. And so scholars are convinced, rightly so, that verse four was not in the original manuscript. From time to time in your Bible, you see a little verse missing. That should not shake your confidence in the Bible. It should give you great confidence that as Christians, we have nothing to hide. But you can see it in the footnote. Some manuscripts insert holy or in part waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Scholars are convinced this wasn't in the original, but it gives a sense for how locally they understood what was happening with the stirring of the water. That they had a notion that an angel stirs the water. There is something divine going on. So we go into it and we're going to be healed. And that's what the man has been waiting for. Perhaps he's tried a number of times, you know, kind of like a snake oil salesman. He's taken another pill and another pill and he's getting into the water and it's not helping this is what the man is looking for hoping for waiting for so when jesus says do you want to be healed the man automatically thinks are you going to help me rush in when the stirring happens next but jesus has something else in mind we constantly see the lord jesus talking on one plane and people understanding him on another nicodemus you must be born again nicodemus well, how is it possible that i i i to go back into my mother's womb. Jesus to the woman in John four, I have living water, you don't even have a bucket. To the disciples, I have food which you know nothing of. Who gave him food? Do you want to be healed? Yes, I want to get into that lovely bubbly water. Jesus is talking here. They're listening here. And I wonder if that happens in your life that Jesus asks a simple question, do you want to be healed? he wants to know what the man really wants he wants to know what you really want jesus is always driving at two things do you see your need and then do you trust in the provision and he's doing both of these things when he comes to this man who's been there for 38 years and he asks him a straightforward question do you want to be healed he wants to identify does the man understand his need And of course, this man could painfully see his need. He was aware of the hopelessness of his situation. Do you see your need? What do you want? What would you answer if Jesus came to you and said, what do you want? Do you understand your need? Not just your need here, but your deepest need. And not only that, but when Jesus asks the question, do you want to be healed? He's not just trying to identify the man's need. He's implicitly offering his provision do you trust me Jesus says because I am here and I want to know do you want to be healed Jesus's question was an offer I can do more for you than you could even know to ask do you believe that about the Lord Jesus that he can do more for you than you even know to ask Remember that strange story from the Old Testament when a prophet tells a man to bang the arrows on the ground and he does it three times. And he says, you should have done it more than three times and I would have given you more victories. Some of us do not bang our arrows on the ground nearly as much as we ought. Jesus can do more for you than you think. Do you want to be healed? Jesus asks this man. It is surprising. And then we come to verse eight. The second thing that Jesus says. And this is even more surprising, shocking. Get up, take your bed and walk. This is even more startling. We might expect Jesus to say after the man explained his predicament with the water. Let me help you into the water. That's what the man would have been expecting. The man's been sick for a very long time, 38 years. The average life expectancy for a man at that time was 40 And this strange man, we presume he has never met before, has the audacity to say to him, get up, as if he'd never thought of it. Now, it is important to notice what it is not here. There is no magic formula. There's no spell. Jesus does not speak in the secret language of elves or wizards. He doesn't need to rush up before the bubbles come in the water. He does not say what they expected him to say. I will move you to the front of the line. No, you do not have to wait for that. You do not have to You do not need to look for gold dust or angel feathers, no healing spring, no angelic assistance. no special water was needed jesus' word is was will always be enough Of course, Jesus' words are surprising because they are mirac- miraculous, and you notice with Jesus it is not an ambiguous miracle. This is not the man complaining. Of a sore back for six months. And then he said I think the back, back is better. Now this is a man who was known to everyone. For 38 years. as been unable to walk. And in an instant. In an instant. He goes from being carried. to On a mat. To carrying his mat. That is surprising. That is shocking. But it is not the miracle that startles us. It is the simplicity of the Lord's command. The Bible is full. Replete of doctrines. And truth and mysteries that have occupied the most brilliant minds for thousands of years and will continue to occupy our minds for eternity. It is a book that's rich and deep and complicated, but I hope you understand at the same time, it is profoundly simple. What is sanctification? Paul says, put off and put on. Vice, put it off. Holiness, put it on. How can I be saved? Repent and believe. What will happen on resurrection morning? Jesus will say to us, just as he said to this man, Get up! And the dead in Christ will rise. You must have heard before that Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth. If he had said just come forth, the dead would have come at that moment if he did not specify Such is the power of the word of the Lord. Get up! Simple, straightforward command. Could it be that you're looking for something more sophisticated from Jesus when he has given you more than enough? We tie ourselves up in knots sometimes with intellectual quandaries that are important and probably sincere. But if we're honest, our intellectual quandaries are one we make for ourselves to avoid having to come to terms with Jesus. Jesus simply says, do you want to be healed? Get up, take the mat that you've been lying on for these years, roll it up and walk. Some of you are looking for something more complicated, more sophisticated. And maybe it is the simplicity of the gospel, which was foolishness to the Greeks. There has to be something else than believing Jesus. He died in the cross, he's coming again. Well, maybe not. All this man needed to heal was get up and believe that when Jesus says, get up, you can, and he did. Now, what he happens next is not surprising that Jewish leaders get really upset with Jesus. He did this on the Sabbath. But what is surprising is what Jesus says later in verse 14. So listen to the one, the third surprising statement from Jesus. And this one really baffles us. See, you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is where things go from surprising to really surprising to really shocking. Give him a hug. So great to see you back on your feet. Jesus found him. Maybe he was looking for him in the temple. That is the temple precincts, the courtyard. It made sense that the man would go there. After all these years, this this is where you would go to celebrate. Look, I'm on my own legs. I'm walking. I'll go to the temple. And we expect Jesus to say... Come here, give me a hug. So great to see you on your feet. But Jesus knows what this man does not. Jesus knows that walking in righteousness is more important than walking on your own two feet. Jesus' contemporaries assumed that there was always a direct relationship between sin and suffering. John 9 verse 2, the disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi who sinned, this man or his parents said he was born blind. He is born blind. According to the culture Obviously something wrong with this man, his parents, he's been punished for something. Obviously this has happened to you because you're a bad person, but it was not the case. And you need to hear very clearly that it is often not the case. If bad things only happen to bad people, how do you explain Jesus? Nothing more heinous, more evil, more wicked in the history of the world than the crucifixion of the Son of God, who had done nothing wrong. No, there is not a one to one correlation between bad things going on and that you have done something bad. That's that operational mindset. I wanted to make that crystal clear. That is usually not the case. However, Jesus's words in John 5:14, as shocking as they are, seem to suggest that at least in this man's instance, there was a relationship between his sin and his suffering. And we do see this in the Bible. The warning in 1 Corinthians 11 is that if you eat or drink of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, the Lord will visit you with punishment, perhaps. He says that that this is why some of you are sick and some of you have died because your sin led to suffering. So sin to suffering is not always a straight line, but sometimes there is a connection. We can only speculate what it was with this man. We just do not know. Was he reckless early in life? Was he engaged in wild living? Did he have a drunken brawl that left him paralyzed? And clearly people could see that he was in this condition as a result of some sinful behavior. We do not know. But Jesus knows and he assumes the man knows that he'd been in this condition at least in part through some bad choices in his life. Sinful choices and now he is better. This is the third sign we see in John's gospel. And we see once again that Jesus knows what he is talking about when he warns the people about wanting just the signs. We all want signs. We all love signs. Whole ministries get built up around signs. And Jesus had plenty of signs. They were important. There are seven of them demarcated in John's gospel. Yet Jesus is always warning people against an infatuation with signs. Jesus is saying, you are better, but mark it well, you have a bigger problem. The man is on his way, rejoicing as he ought, and Jesus stops him short. Not because Jesus does not love him, but because he is loving. To want to see the man that for all these years, while he had feet or legs that didn't work, he had a deeper problem. He had a heart that didn't work. Remember the story in Luke 13. Some people say, what do we do with these Galileans whose blood Jesus, Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices? How do we make sense of these bad things that have happened? And Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, and unless you repent, you will always likewise perish. Or the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam, Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will always all likewise perish. Whatever the connection with this man, between his sin and his suffering, the point that Jesus is making is the same one as in Luke 13. There are worse things that will come on you upon you than broken legs. Worse things than eyes that do not see. Worse things than backs that ache. There are worse things if you do not deal with the deeper problem, which is your sin. What is it you really want, brothers and sisters, dear listener? A change in your circumstance or a change in you? You notice that the healed man never expressed gratitude, even appreciation, even interest in Jesus. This makes sense in chapter 4 last week when Jesus is in Galilee, why he rebukes them when they come and ask him to heal the official son. And Jesus says, I know that all you want is signs. So they come to this man and they say, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was. And you get the distinct impression that as soon as he meets him again and he knows who he is, he'll be eager to go back to the Jewish authorities and betray Jesus. He did not really want a savior, not if he could have the healing. And that is the sad reality. Many don't want Christ. They want a life coach. Jesus had one more thing to say in verse 17. My father is working until now and I am working. We've gone from surprising to shocking to outright scandalizing. There are two issues here, one on top of the other. The first is the Sabbath. It is not that Jesus broke any Old Testament regulation, but he broke their traditions in the Mishnah which was written a century after this, but compiled the traditions that would have been around in the first century. We read of 39 classes of prohibited work on the Sabbath, including carrying an object from one place to another. Ironically, as it happens, when you feel like you need to pass out every little jot and tittle of obedience, you could be carried on a mat for healing, but you couldn't carry your own mat. So it was considered that if you were carrying a person on your on the mat, carrying the mat was incidental. You were trying to carry the person. But if there were no person on it, then you were carrying a mat. And this meant you were breaking the Sabbath. They did. They do not blame the man. They blame Jesus who told you you could do this on the Sabbath, carrying your mat from one place to another. And again, we think that Jesus ought to be interested in perhaps finding some common ground with the Jews. Why did he not just say to them, I honor the Sabbath just as much as you. I love the law of Moses just as much as you. Let me explain what the Sabbath was for and let me tell you why I was doing what I was doing. But that's not Jesus' style. Jesus built bridges for people who wanted to walk across, but for the proud and the hard-hearted, he preferred blowing up bridges to building them. These were the rebellious and hard-hearted. He wasn't trying to find common ground because he knew what they were after. The Sabbath issue hinged on the definition of work. So Jesus provocatively says in verse 17, you are mad at me for working or telling someone to carry a mat. You think I'm violating the command to rest. Well, my father is working and so I am going to work because I am my father's son. Implicit there is this understanding that the Jews had. Who is keeping the universe running? Well, in a sense, God rested on the seventh day. We know that. And in a sense, that Sabbath from our dead works, Hebrews 4 tells us, is a perpetual Sabbath. But there is another sense in which God is upholding the universe by the word of his power. God is still at work. So Jesus rightly says, my father is working. The Sabbath leads to the bigger problem. Does Jesus think he's on a par with God the father? When the Jews went into exile in Babylon, that experience had convinced them of at least one thing. Worshipping another God is always catastrophically wrong. There is one thing we get right at. as Jews, we worship one God. There is only one God. And now Jesus of Nazareth says, my father. It is not in the same sense that we would pray our father. Jesus is speaking of equality. The rabbis traditionally felt held that four people in the Hebrew Bible made themselves like God. Pharaoh, King Joash, who rebelled after the high priest died, Hiram, the prince of Tyre, and Nebuchadnezzar, and all four ended badly. They were the four quintessential men who made themselves like God. And here comes Jesus, another one. Verse 18 contains the first reference in John to the plot to kill Jesus. People say they killed Jesus because he was so inclusive. They hated Jesus because he was so loving, and it is true, he upset them. He was considered a friend of sinners and a tax collector, and that bothered them. But in all four Gospels, let us be very clear, we see they killed him because they thought he was a blasphemer. They hated him because he made himself equal with God. They killed him because he had the audacity to say, I am one with the Father. This is the beginning of a distinctively Christian form of monotheism, sometimes people just lump it together. The three great monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And that is only true in one superficial sense of the word. Christianity has an entirely unique view on monotheism. The Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us, you cannot know God without knowing Jesus as the father's son. So it separates Christianity from cults and false religions that the son equal with the father. And you see how all these surprising statements from Jesus work together because he is equal with the father. He can heal and because he can heal he in that equality with the father. He has the authority to forgive sins and because he has that authority. He can tell this man to go and sin no more. It all comes together in Jesus. That is the thing about Jesus. A lot of people are interested in Jesus if they can have part of Jesus. Well, I like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. I like that. Neither do I pick up stones. I like that, Jesus. I like the Jesus with the sinners and tax collectors. Or maybe you like the Jesus who turns over the tables. We all want a little part of Jesus but although Jesus offers himself freely he only ever offers himself completely. You can't have part of Jesus, you have him completely. He never says come and pick, come and choose, come and focus on whatever part of me you find appealing. Jesus says I offer myself to you but you have to take all of me. Jesus the questioner, Jesus the healer. Jesus, the sin crusher. Jesus, the God-man. Make no mistake, Jesus is surprising. Jesus is shocking. Jesus is scandalous. And he is better than you think. He is bigger than you think. And he's more than enough for all that you need. He asked you the question this afternoon as he asked this man on a straw mat. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be changed? And if so, Jesus would say, does say, come unto me, all ye who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.